It's that time again. It's Greek for the week. I'm Chris Palmer. Let's open our Bibles and get right down to the original language, the Greek. God bless you. It's Greek for the week podcast coming at you. Special edition. We try and put special editions in, and you're going to get it. You're going to get Greek for the week on Wednesdays, but I try to get to two a week at least. Sometimes I can do one. And if you want more, you got to have to petition them and say, hey, more podcasts, please. You know, when you tell me more podcasts, that motivates me to do more than just <laughs> than just do once a week. Let's talk about something that I should have maybe talked about a while back, and that is why should we study Greek? And let me give you my experience. I was in college. I went to North Central University in Minneapolis, Minnesota, earned my bachelor's degree in pastoral studies and theology, and then went on to Moody Theological Seminary, earned my master's in exegetical theology, but that was that had some time in between. And my attitude is a little bit different about Greek going into my master's program, which I really, really went back to my master's program to learn Greek, <clears throat> and then because I had a passion for it, and that's why, and that's why I went to earn my master's in it. But prior to that, um, when I was starting undergrad at eighteen, I was a I was ready to take the gospel to the nations and preach to the sick and deliver and cast out demons and do the work of the ministry. And my whole attitude was, I, you know what? I don't need Greek. I don't. I got an English Bible. We're all good here. And I appreciated Greek, but I felt like, you know, the Greek students that I went to school with were just not, they're not my lane of people at the time. And they always were telling me what the Greek said. I just didn't want to hear it. And um, that means I put, I put, actually had, a person in college, they were my rival, and they were a Greek student, I wasn't, and they used to come back and say, well, this was wrong, and that was wrong, I just didn't like it, so I, I stuck my face against the wall, and, and was very stubborn, and said, you know what, I'm not doing it, and then I had to take it, my supervisor came to me, and he said, you have to take Greek, this is your senior year, you're not graduating unless you take it, twisted my arm, and I took it, and you know something, I loved it, I, I really did, it was hard, it was difficult, Greek one, Greek two, our difficult classes when you learn how the language functions, but I really enjoyed it. Um, and then the Spirit of God put it in my heart in 2013 to go back and get a master's in it, and I loved it even more. Uh, and there's some things that I really, I got to say that my attitude obviously has changed towards it, and there's reasons why, and it really wasn't until you get past Greek 1 and Greek 2 that you start to recognize why. And I'm going to share, I want you to stick with me if you have no desire to study Greek. Just listen in for a minute. Let me show you how the Greek would change some scriptures uh, as I show you four reasons why you should study Greek. Now, first question I get asked is, are, do you speak Greek? No, I don't speak Greek. If I went to Greece, if I went to um, Cyprus or, or was amongst Greek people, I, I wouldn't understand them, and they would not understand me, and I have an English language. I have an English tongue. I, I live in America, so I have an American accent. I live in the Midwest. I live in Michigan, so I have my own accent. It's hard for me to even pronounce Greek. At times, I do my best, but like somebody coming to America trying to speak English from, you know, uh, another country, you know, India or whatever, China or Kazakhstan, it doesn't matter, Russia, they would have their challenges speaking American English. But it's trying, right? So I don't speak it. Well, and, and here's the thing. The Greek that is spoken in, in uh, Cyprus and Greece right now is different. It's a different type of Greek. The Greek that is in the Word of God. It's called Koine Greek. It means common. It refers to the language of the Mediterranean area from 300 BC 
okay, Hellenism to 300 AD, which was, you know, about the time of the 3rd century, 4th century. And this, uh, the writing of the Testament took place at this time. So it makes sense that if Koine Greek was the common people's language, uh, that all 27 books of the Bible were originally uh, written in Koine Greek. And so, um, you know, there were several dialects of Greek going on at that time. There was Attic Greek, there was Koine Greek, there was other dialects as well. Attic Greek is a more staunch type of Greek. It's what the dramatists and the comedians at that time, what they spoke, Homer, and going on. And if you just go through all the different philosophers of time, Aristotle, Plato, they spoke uh, different forms of Greek, Attic, and the other the other dialects. But Koine Greek was a more relaxed version as the language moved forward and as people uh, as people became more educated or more widely educated. You know, the language became more common. It's like relaxed English. You know, there's there is proper English and there's relaxed English. I would say that I would say American English is a more relaxed English than British English. I really think the British people have a very very pronounced way of speaking. I got to admit, as an English speaker, I wish I talked like a Brit. For some reason, their language just seems, their accents, the way they say things seems to swoon people. And it's really, it's wonderful. But, but I, you know, as an American, I can say it. American English is more relaxed. Anyway, okay. So Attic is the common people's language. And that's where the Bible is written, in Attic Greek. So it's interesting to see that God picked the relaxed common person's language, what the fishermen spoke, it's what the uh, the merchants spoke, it's what the, uh, what the servants spoke at the time, it's what your average person you find, the fishermen, they spoke it, it was a Bible, 27 letters, the whole New Testament, and the Gospels, uh, or say 27 books, letters and Gospels, for everybody, it's not just for kings, it's for kings, and it's for the lowest of the lows, it's for the common person. So Attic came first, and it was a prestigious dialect, like I said, dramatists, philosophers, they used it, um, and then time went by. Uh, so we see the gospel isn't just for the elite, it's for all people, slightest to the greatest. And so as time went on, uh, the New Testament was translated from Koine into over 1,500 languages as we have it today, and these translations are uh, to be trusted. Okay, so we can trust the translations. I've said this before, I'll say it again, your English, your ESV, your NLT, your NASB, your BSB, whatever you have, it is the result of expert translation societies working with diligence to care and preserve the meaning of God's word as it moves from one language to the next, okay? So, so if you've ever studied Greek, you'd just be fine with the translation. If, you, if you've never studied Greek, I should say, you'd be fine with the translation that you have right now. So the point is then, then Chris Palmer, why should I even study Greek? All right, let's start in the book of Jude and let's take it from here. The book of Jude, if you have it, you'll read it in the English. And I've said it, I think I've said it on the podcast before, Jude is probably the hardest language in the New Testament, as far as Greek, the hardest Greek, according to one of my professors. It, you know, I had a Greek reading class when I was uh, 27, 28, and we had to translate the book of Jude. And it was tough. I, it was very tough work translating Jude. It was a lot easier to translate John. It's because Jude doesn't have right branching sentences. And uh, I've said this, that it doesn't need word order the Greek, right branching sentences. So um, if you were to translate, let's, let's go to Jude chapter, there's only one chapter, chapter one. Let's go to verse 19. Mm, scroll down here. I've got my software on my screen. So in English, it says this. It is those who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. So that's what you see in the English, ESV. It is those who cause divisions, worldly people 
people devoid of the Spirit, all right? And so if you were to translate it word for word from the Greek into English, the way that it's written in the Greek, it would say this. These are the ones who cause divisions worldly, the Spirit not they have. Okay, so that's literally what it says in the Greek. Autu, eisen, o, apo, dioizontes, o koi, panuma, me, exontes. So it says in the Greek. And literally, these are the ones who cause divisions worldly, the, the spirit not they have. And as the English speakers, this it seems out of sorts, and it is out of sorts for the English language. Okay? I mean, we don't speak this way. These are the ones who cause divisions worldly, the spirit not they have. Now, you could probably bear with that for one sentence, but imagine if the whole New Testament was written that way, okay, exactly word for word, the way that we have it here. It'd be very complicated and probably frustrating to read that way, but in the Greek, that's how it reads. So what translators do is they say, well, we got to take be in mind that English speakers don't talk this way, and we're going to lose them, so we're going to turn it around a bit to make it make sense more for English speakers. And so this is what we end up with. These are the ones who cause divisions worldly. They have not the Spirit. It is saying the exact same thing. You have not changed what the Word of God says at all. You've not altered it. You're not displeasing to the Lord. It makes sense. And there is one, though, there, in doing this, in, in helping, there's one disadvantage, and that is we lose a nuance. Now, because the Koine Greek doesn't need word order, like I've said before, sometimes the writers took advantage of this and positioned words where they would like to emphasize those words up front. They're taking advantage of it. And so by placing spirit right here in the front, by saying the spirit not they have, what they're doing is you just highlighting the fact that the apostates who claim to be of God, they did not have in bold, he's shouting it at you, the Holy Spirit. So it's positioned up front, acts like bold, underlined, 42-point wingding font, all right? While he makes it clear in other places in the letter, we lose out on this, this big, bold, underlined, circle, arrows, nuance that we have in it. Now, God's word remains inspired, it remains infallible, it remains inerrant, but you see this sharp nuance right here that really speaks to us, pops out, it just comes forward, and so that's why I say that um, reading Greek is like reading a movie, or watching a movie, I could say, watching Netflix, watching in high definition, like Blu-ray. I don't even think anybody uses Blu-ray anymore. But you get the point. Okay, so it makes things come forward a whole lot better. And that's why I tell people, make sure if you have the opportunity in your life, if you're going through Bible school, if you're going through, uh, you know, some type of educational program, you, you should have Greek. If you're starting a Bible school, all right, think about having someone come in and teaching some form of Greek. Uh, that would really, that would really be helpful because it changes nuances, or you at least see the nuances that are there. Okay, number two. Um, as preachers, we have to have a handle on the Word of God. There's nothing better than getting up in the pulpit, I'm telling you, as a teacher and as a preacher, somebody that can do both. Somebody says, do you like teaching or preaching better? I like them both. They're both different. And there's nothing like having a handle on what you're saying. It arises in you a sense of confidence. It arises in for for also in in your audience a sense of confidence in listening to you as a as a speaker. It develops inside of them a sense of trust. You know, there's nothing worse than a mealy mouthed preacher. Someone says, "I don't know what you see," and I'm like, and like um um like um, and you know, like um uh, like um um. You don't want to speak that way ever. You want to come out with it. 
and have such a control over your information so that the Holy Spirit can anoint it and it can be powerful. And remember, nobody's going to believe what you say unless you say it with conviction. My professor taught us, he said, listen, when I ask you a question, you answer, say it with conviction. Sometimes, he, you know, because he's challenging us and we'd answer, we'd raise our hand and say, well, I'm not sure. And we would preface all of our, <laughs> we'd preface all of our responses with a, well, you know, prof, I'm, I'm not really, and he'd stop and he'd slam his hand. I'd say, say it with confidence. And if you're going to be wrong, be wrong with confidence. And you know, it's not trying to be wrong. We don't want to be wrong. But the point he's trying is still confidence in us. And nothing develops confidence in your, in your teaching better than, than knowing the Greek because it forces you to study. It forces you to wrestle with the two parts of language that are most important, that is grammar and that is syntax. And it can be arduous and it takes time. But the more you wrestle with the passage, the more confidence you're going to have in who you are, what you preach, what you teach, because, because you have already wrestled with it in depth. You have to wrestle with you have to wrestle with it. Wrestle with the Word of God. I, I really don't think people today wrestle with the Word of God the way they used to wrestle with it. They depend on quotes from Instagram, People's sermons from YouTube, and they don't get into it and plug at it the way they should. They don't know how. They're just we're just so used to quotes and and, and things today that we we see that that sound sharp. And then when you say, "Why did you say that?" I don't know. I don't know. It just seems right. I'm not sure why I said it. Look, get under the hood and start ripping up the engine to know why the engine functions the way it does. You don't have to do it that way, but it's going to give you an advantage, and that is confidence. Number one. So let's take a scripture, Luke 10, 18. Okay, Luke 10, 18, you know, <clears throat> I've heard this preached a lot of times, and I've heard it preached one way, and I want to give you a different way of looking at it. Um, Jesus has, uh, this is what it says. He says, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from, from heaven. All right, um, let's read it in Greek. I come de autos, etherun to satanan os, astron pain act to Arunu Pesonta. Okay, so that's what he says. Arunu Pesonto. Okay, let's wrestle with it for a second. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So Jesus has just sent the 70 out of the 72, depending on what your translation says. And you ask me why once the 70, once the 72, that is a textual criticism issue. It's a whole nother subject. That's if we ever talk about text criticism here on this podcast. They're sent by Jesus to proclaim the kingdom. They're sent by Jesus to heal the sick. And when they return, they tell the Lord about the wonderful results they saw. Even, it says even they, you know, that they casted out devils. You know, it's like they're surprised. Jesus, we were, we were casting out devils. Can you believe it, Jesus? I mean, here we are casting out devils, Lord. And Jesus replies, and this is what he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, this is random. Seems kind of random. And this gets, this gets typically preached as though Jesus was referring to Satan's pre-edemic fall in Isaiah chapter, Isaiah chapter 14. Hmm. You know something? Even before I really took to look at this in the Greek, I just, it just didn't make sense. Why is Jesus going all the way back to Satan's pre-edemic fall in Isaiah 14? I get it. Satan fell, but it just, it seemed like somebody forced a square peg into a round hole right here. Just to me, it did. Always did. So I wanted to look at it and said, maybe there is another explanation that's here. So we go to the Greek. That's the first place I go. Now, the Greek doesn't always, doesn't always solve every problem. Now, I speak in tongues. I've been baptized in the Spirit. I encourage people to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It really changed my life. I can do a teaching on it one time. 
I believe that if you seek for it, the Lord will fill you. I encourage that, okay? Somebody said to me, why don't you do a uh, Greek for the week on tongues and praying in tongues? I said, I don't know if I could do a Greek for the week on it because I don't think there's one thing in the Greek that solves that discussion. I think you have to come at it through context and through examining the book of Acts, and I don't want to boil down something to just one word in the Greek. I really don't like to try to end discussions that are theological using Greek. I don't like to do that. I think it's healthy to have discussions, and I'm not trying to end things like that that are healthy to discuss. Um, if I, my argument for the baptism in the Holy Spirit, okay, extends beyond Greek into context and into intent, and it would have to be something we read from Luke. That's how you're going to do it with Luke, but it's just not going to come from Paul's letters. It's got to come from Luke's understanding of the Holy Spirit. That's why I'm not, don't think I'm going to do one on glossolalia and such. But I believe in it, and I'm filled. I, I have this experience of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, and that, and that degree. And I pray in tongues every day. I woke up this morning and was praying in tongues, and prior even to this, it just we could do some practical teaching on that sometime. And I encourage you to seek it. But we don't see for us that have it. Don't see ourselves better than those that that say they don't have it. Anyway, now I digress. Let me get back on to subject here. So we look if we examine the verb for I saw, we see that it's etherun. Etherun. My glasses, I don't have them on. Let me zoom in here. Ah, here we go. Etherun. And if we examine the verb, we're going to discover something interesting. And that is we find it in the imperfect tense. Now, that's different because the imperfect tense always takes past tense. That's why we see Jesus say, I saw. Because when you bring the imperfect over into Okay, English, it's going to take the past. Aorist tense takes the past. Imperfect tense takes the past. But, okay, the imperfect portrays an action as it <clears throat> is unfolding, as, as it is happening. So it's like saying, I was seeing, or I was, you know, I was, was watching. So say, I was seeing, okay, what it means, unfolding. Past tense, something unfolding in the past tense. It just gets translated in the past in English for whatever reason. Not exactly sure, but you you would be okay if you were carefully translating this from the Greek. You'd be okay to say that when Jesus says it, it, uh, here, I was watching or I was seeing Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So this, this changes, this is a game changer here, folks. What Jesus could very well be saying is that at the same time as those who were preaching the gospel went out and preached the kingdom and preached uh, the word of God and did what Jesus said at the same time, okay, he was proclaiming the kingdom and they were ousting demons, he was watching Satan's kingdom collapse. And so the imperfect tense makes a pretty good case for this to suggest that this isn't really referring to a pre-edemic fall. It's referring to Jesus watching by the Spirit, by, this, by him being the God-man. He knew that when his disciples were out there, he kind of disappears off the scenes. And where he went, we don't know. But we do know that he was very aware of the fact that Satan's kingdom was collapsing as a result of his commissioning his disciples with his power. And as they came back to Jesus, telling them in a very surprised manner, mind you, we're, we're really surprised about this. And Jesus says, well, you're not telling me anything new because I was watching 
and referring to them expelling demons as the collapse of Satan's kingdom. And it was the collapse. It was, it was the beginning of the end for Satan when Jesus came and commissioned his disciples. Makes a whole lot of sense here. So that what's the application? When we go preach the gospel and do what Jesus tells us to do, Satan's kingdom collapses and comes crumbling down. Every time you bring someone to the Lord, they get saved. Satan's kingdom is collapsing. Every time someone answers an altar call, every time you lay hands on the sick, every time you expel demons, every time you tell your testimony and it lifts up people and encourages people, the kingdom of darkness is, is uh, defeating the kingdom of, uh, the kingdom of heaven is defeating the kingdom of darkness. Amen. Okay, number three, it removes personal biases. I know what you're thinking. I don't have any personal biases from the Word of God. Well, you probably do. And that's because I do and I have had personal biases and probably still have them. And, you know, I think it's good as a Christian sometimes when you're theology to be in conflict with yourself. I don't, I don't really, I don't and, and understand why I say that. I don't appreciate people who think they know everything. And you meet those people. People that know everything are the hardest people in the world to preach to. I can't stand preaching to people uh, that think they know it all. And there's people that just do. They just think that you're not telling them anything they don't know or haven't heard already. And there's sometimes whole churches, congregations that are full of people like that, and it stops the move of God. You want to have broken people that are wanting to learn more. And I, I really believe that we need to be pliable no matter how much we've seen God do, no matter how much we've known about God. You know, that's why I like academia so much. Oftentimes we think academia people are know-it-alls. They're really not. The academic community is not full of know-it-alls. matter of fact, they're more likely to get along with each other than people who are not educated because acad people, uh, academics and people that have been through academia have been humbled time and time and time again. And they have an attitude of it's not about in certain areas where the discussion is ongoing, okay? It's not about being right or wrong. It's about making a case and looking at it and respecting the other person's opinions. So, you know, that's why, you know, I am not a Calvinist, but I don't throw Calvinists under the bus. I get along with them. And my Calvinist brothers, uh, and we can talk it out, why I lean more on the Arminian side, okay? We can talk it out, all right? But... But at the end of the day, we respect each other, and I love them, and I, if you're a Calvinist, I hope and pray you listen to this podcast and stay listening to it. If you're Arminian, I feel the same way. We're on the same team, all right? Um, but I see the people that are, I, you know, when I'm on Instagram and I see uh, people fighting, I see these, these reformed pages, these reformed uh, Instagram pages. They're so, they're so smug sometimes, just throwing Pentecostals under the bus, and then I see the Pentecostals throwing the Calvinists under the bus. I'm like, guys. Guys, come on. And these are usually people that have not, have not been through the humble halls of academia. So it'll change you. It'll change you. Okay. So your personal bias, it's going to remove them. So you'd be in conflict with yourself. Like, what do I think about this? I'm still open to look at it in a different way. There should be aspects where, of the Word of God where, where we are doing that. And so as I've studied Greek over the years, there's been times when I've had to say, you know, goodbye to some pet beliefs of mine. Now, a pet belief is a non-salvific belief. You know... You know, those minor things that, that belief or disbelief it don't really change your outstand, uh, or your standing in Christ or in his body. You know, those things that we hold on to various personal reasons and, you know, it could have been your grandpa's favorite thing to say. It could have been your old pastor's, you know, part of his best preaching point. It could have been something you formed on your own, some revelation you thought you had. For whatever reason, it's just not supported well enough in the word of God. <laughs> right? Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Let, let me give you an example from my life, okay? 
Revelation chapter 9, 7, 10. I know, we're going to Revelation. And it's my favorite book of the Bible. Someone asked me that once. They said, what's your favorite book of the Bible? I get asked that a lot. And I fluctuate. But um, right now, if you ask me present day 2019, I'm going to tell you probably, probably Revelation. I like the ending of the book. You know, I like the ending of movies. I like the ending of the book. So Revelation chapter 9, 7 says, In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like woman's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. The noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing, like horses rushing into, into battle. So that's all the way through. Verse number, and number verse 10 says, They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. All right, you got it? I used to read this all the time and think to myself, this has to be an allusion to war helicopters. You know, like in America, the American Army has the Boeing AH-64 Apache. This has to be the Boeing AH-64 Apache because this is this, I mean, look at this, teeth and fire and iron and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots and you know, like a helicopter and it sounds like a horse rushing into battle and they have tails, look at, they, they fire their missiles from their tails and it's like scorpions and they could do a lot of damage and drop bombs. Yes, this is the helicopter. Well, I, you know, as I started studying, I had to ask myself, why, why? First of all, this is another translation issue. It goes beyond the Greek, goes into hermeneutics and, and understanding uh, context here. But why, why can't I just accept that this is referring to locusts that are uh, ferocious supernatural forces of evil that they're portrayed to be? And the reason is because when I was probably, I don't know, 14, I saw, I was in Bible class in high school, and I saw an end-time movie by an end-time ministry, and, and they made these locusts be the helicopters. And I said, that made sense, and it just became a part of my belief system. And that's why, that's why I thought they were the helicopters. So, mm, I don't know. I don't think you can just fit that in there just because. It, it, it's just, I don't think it works. I don't think it fits. And if you do that, you're going to get stuck. Anytime you get stuck, it's probably because you have violated a uh, hermeneutical or uh, a methodological way of interpreting something, <clears throat> okay? Not to say that helicopters won't be a part of the Battle of Armageddon. I mean, we'd probably be using technology in that battle, but I don't think that's what Revelation 9 is saying. In fact, I believe very strongly that's not what it's saying. So let's back it up here. And so let's go back in the context, Revelation chapter 9. Let's see if the Greek at least offers us some help, and it does. So if we go back to Revelation chapter 9, verse 2, it says, He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. Okay, so when we look here... Um, We'll see that the locusts come from smoke that originates in the bottomless pits, and the smoke goes, as the scripture says here, on, okay, on the earth. So the locusts come from the bottomless pit and go on the earth. The Greek preposition, ace, on, it means into and onto. So they are coming into and onto the earth from the bottomless pit, okay? That's what it says here. From the bottomless pit, into onto, which tells me 
that unless they have Boeing H-64 Apache helicopters in hell, these are not helicopters. He's describing evil spiritual beings that come out of the bottomless pit with the smoke that originates from the bottomless pit, okay, and onto ace the earth. So it's got to be something that's in hell now or in hell the time that the bottomless pit is open and the smoke descends onto ace the earth, okay? So you see here that that is uh, essential, quintessential in our understanding. Next, finally, I'll end with this. Studying the Greek checks our motives. And I've already mentioned this before, but number four, checks our motives. In a world where everything, everything is competing for our attention and everyone has something to say, people are looking to the Word of God for the wrong reasons. They want a quick fix. They want a flashy lesson. They want a quote. They want something to put on their Instagram. They want, you know, they want, the, the, they want to color it in their Bible. They want to draw pictures in their Bible, something to draw a picture in. And, and I'm, listen, I'm all for you spending time with the Word of God the way you want to spend time with the Word of God. But don't just do it for those reasons, okay? Don't just do it for something to support your agenda. If you truly want to benefit from God's Word, you have to spend time with it and you have to wrestle with it, and you have to let it infuse into your heart. I will tell you that nothing cleanses you better than a deep clean from God's Word. Go in there and start studying it and learn how to divide it. Very, There's a difference between knowing facts from God's Word, finding inspiration from God's Word, being able to share an inspirational thought from God's Word, and being able to divide the Word of God. You cannot divide God's, divide God's Word until you have properly spent time with it, okay? Teach it, break it down, chop it up, divide it, make it, keep it in its original context and original intent and be able to give it to somebody in their life. So it forces you to approach God's word with reverence, with awe, and humbling yourself to obey what it says, whether it's something you want to hear or not. I mean, we don't want to cherry pick God's word. I'll take this, but I won't take this. I'll take that, I won't take this. I don't like this, but I like that. da 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 I mean, like the, the the idea of judging. Oh, we shouldn't judge. It's my job to love people. It's God's job to judge. Well, listen, um, you know, that's Matthew 7, 1, but there's, what about 1 Corinthians 5? Paul tells them to kick the sinner out of the church. <laughs> Paul says that, you know, bad company corrupts good morals. So 1 Corinthians 15 and 33. So how are you going to determine something's bad company if you can't judge it? I could show you countless examples. Maybe we'll do something on judging one time. Just countless examples in God's word of, uh, of uh, it, Jesus says, if you have in your eye, how dare you, if you have a beam in your eye, try to remove someone's speck. First take the beam out of their eye, then you could help them remove the speck. So you still got to acknowledge they have a speck in their eye. That takes judging, right? And Jesus says, once the beam comes out, then you can help them with the speck. So the idea is to help them with the speck, point it out to them. So different ways to look at it, but sometimes we go around those scriptures because we just, we just don't want to deal with it. It doesn't make us feel good, and I'm not for that. I'm really not for that. I can't get with it. So if you're at a place in your life where you desire to examine God's word even more deeply than you, are, you already have, you, you want to remove your personal biases, you want to know your stuff better, or you just like to want to read the Bible in high definition, I highly, I highly recommend that you take upon yourself a study of Greek. At least stay with Greek for the week. It's going to help you. Share this with a friend. Tell them, hey, Greek for the week, we're going deeper. So I pray this blesses your life. You know, if you study Greek or if you don't study Greek, it, the same goes to Hebrew. I'm, you know, my areas. Uh, specialty is the New Testament. I'm all for the Old Testament. It's just as much inspired, infallible, and inerrant as God's Word. But usually in academia, you have 
you either have New Testament or Old Testament. And if you're if you have really, you know, study my my prof, he studied both. Just as arduous, and that's why he's that's why he's the man. But um, but either way, and sometimes I get these Old Testament questions. I say you can check up this Old Testament person, you know, this uh, uh, authority on the Old Testament, and I don't mind doing that. Sometimes I refer things, you know. Someone asked me a theological question the other day. I said, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but you can find it here. Don't mind doing that. I don't know everything, <laughs> but I know enough to tell you. It's good that you would study Greek, and, and my studies are in the New Testament. I preached from the Old Testament. Matter of fact, last Sunday, I preached from the Old Testament. It was wonderful but um, to preach from the Old Testament. But they're both very important. The Old Testament is for our learning and admonition. The New Testament is to see the fulfillment of the promise that we now have in Christ Jesus through His Holy and His Holy Spirit. So anyway, hope this helps you. God bless you. Thank you for listening. Make sure you give this five-star rating. Uh, share with it, share this with a friend, and we so much appreciate your viewership. Study Greek. If you have any questions about Greek, you can DM me on Instagram, and I'll be able to help you there. God bless you. Talk to you again next time. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to support us further, you may visit us on the web at lightoftoday.org. God bless, and good studying.